0: You know, churches are often striving to build reputations. It's, you know, who we are. It's kind of difficult to help. Uh, We want to be known in our communities. We want to known for for being able to accomplish certain things, perhaps having a certain personality about us. It's always good getting good headlines. It's never fun getting bad headlines. We care about those things. We say kind of in our spiritual platitudes and stuff, "Well, oh, it doesn't matter what man thinks and stuff. But, you know, we're kind of human, too. And sometimes it stings. Sometimes it matters to us how we're known in our community. And faith for the last year has been endeavoring to, to do some very strategic outreach types of things. And uh, we make no... Um, secrets about the fact that we wanted to be known for doing some of those things, not to get the pats on the back or anything like that, so that people that are out in our community that don't know the Lord or don't have a church, or maybe they've come up with some of their own perceptions of, of our church or something, would see things and go, well, that's not what I expected of them. You know, there's lots of headlines and things that are talking about what the church is and what the church should be, and this is just all across our nation now. So it matters to us a lot of times on how we're building our reputation. And if we're not careful, we start getting our eyes off the ball and we start chasing down this particular um, uh, act of good press or maybe uh, this um, particular accolade that we want to get. And it, it's very easy for us to fall into that trap. When you not to totally beat on the church or anything that when I say the church, usually I'm talking about big C church universal, not just faith but but all of us that are carrying the name of Christ and and being evangelical, which is applying God's Word, living by it as best as uh, we can and allow the Spirit to do in our lives and so um, it, with with a whole host of problems out in our society, it's very normal for people of faith who have Typically bleeding hearts for good reason because the spirit of Christ that works in us, that causes us to have compassion on people that are struggling. We see all sorts of things going on out there between poverty and corruption and uh, family havoc that's being wreaked everywhere and drug addiction and other substance abuse and all of these things. And And churches naturally say, well, we want to do something about those things. We see hungry people, so we want to start uh, food shelters or we want to uh, clothe them and things. And, and in fact, you know, Jesus uh, refers, to that a lot as being an act of our faith and carrying that out. And so these are never bad things to be involved in, but it's, it's, it's different when the church says we want to be known for this, and so we're going to put all of our eggs in this particular basket. It becomes a danger because we're not focused necessarily on the thing that we should be. The last couple of months, we've been uh, moving along in a, in a series basically called What Makes the Church Healthy, or What Makes a Healthy Church. Um partly to bring us all up to speed on what we are to be about and also to hold us, you know, accountable for are we are we leading in this direction? And so um, as we've been going through these series of messages for just the last couple of months, uh, we have discovered that it, it all needs to start with how we handle the word of God. Remember, we can make the Bible say just about anything we want it to say. So if we have our focus out of whack and we have our goals all askew, we can find support in the scripture to probably make a case for that. We may have to do a little bit of gymnastics with it, but we can do it in somewhat of a convincing way. And we said, if you don't, if you don't believe me, then check and see all the cults that have started out there and how it just seems like within an instant, thousands and thousands of people give away their entire livelihoods to follow some guru or do something along those lines. Why? Because he said so, because he said he had a dream or he had a vision and and this kind of thing. And so it does happen to us where we can be manipulated even by something as pure as the word of God because of the way that it's being handled. So we started this series off saying it's so important for us to determine how we handle the word of God so that you have the uh, confidence that the church that you are um, com- uh, communing with or that the, the church that you are serving in, that you are plugged into, has a good handle on a, a source of truth higher than somebody's personality or higher than somebody's wishes or whims at the moment. It's important for you to have the confidence that the leadership of particularly our church— Uh, is understanding that the word of God is our ultimate authority. And it's in the understanding and the application of that word that we pursue with our whole lives. And so uh, for the last couple of months, that's what we've been talking about. And so I thought that uh, this month we should get into this idea of what are we supposed to be finding our identity in? And as we said, with all of those things out there and the, the worthy pursuits that we could be chasing, very easy to get off track. Well, Paul understood, the Apostle Paul understood that his young apprentice, Timothy, could run into the same problem. Paul is leaving Timothy in charge of the church at Ephesus. He's moving on and, he, and he's going to communicate. And, and, and what we have in our, in our Bible in the New Testament are two letters that Paul sent to Timothy but he's communicating to Timothy, he's saying, Um, I want you to understand that you, you need to stay on course for what we've talked about. We need you need to stay on course what the the work that the Lord has begun, not even the work that Paul cares about or the work that Timothy thinks needs to happen. I want you, Timothy, to to focus on the main thing. And so in the first letter to Timothy, Paul sets the stage for us here. And I thought it would be important to read larger chunks of scripture. At times, so that we can see some of Paul's heart that's coming out of this, because I think Paul's going to help us understand where does the church get its identity? Where does a church put its focus? Do we, do we open the soup kitchen? Because that's what society is asking us to do or expects. That's what churches do. You guys give, cl- give out clothes and you, and you do soup ladles and stuff like that. That's what you're supposed to. That's what the church should be known for. Is it up to society to define who the church is and what the church is about? Is it even up to us, mankind, that is, to be in charge of what that identity should be? I think Paul's gonna set that all straight for us here this morning. He starts off uh, the letter saying this. Now imagine, if you will, for me, just for a second, Timothy is left behind. We've all already established he's new at this and he's green. And it's not like he can pull up right now media like we have at the church and say, I wonder what this a famous preacher says on this particular subject, or go to my bookshelf and pull out this how-to manual for church growth and strategy and all these things. Timothy has none of that. He has the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. And he has the instruction that Paul has given him up to the point that he says, now, good luck. You're on your own. I'm out of here. I have other work to do. If the church is going to grow, we have to split up. We have to divide and conquer. So imagine that first letter coming to Timothy from his mentor, from his, from his hero in the faith, the one who's raising him up in the faith. And so imagine, put yourself in Timothy's sandals, I'm assuming, probably at that point. Timothy, just making sure you're with me. Didn't have shoes. All right. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, My true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the father in Christ, our Jesus, our Lord, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. The goal then, Timothy, of our instruction is this. It's love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let me let me just stop there for a second and ask a question. Can you imagine how many ministries that we've seen on TV or we've heard about in the news and things like that? Imagine how many ministries would have avoided the trouble they got into if they could say, that's our goal right there. Our instruction is to be one of love and that love. If it's going to be true love, not just the feely good love or the manipulating kind of thing. If it's love, it's going to be from a pure heart which means the instructor himself has to be of pure heart, has to be cleansed and of a good conscience, which means the thing I'm telling you to do, I know I'm telling me to do too. And I'm not telling you one thing, expecting a standard of you that I have no intention of living by. And also in a sincere faith, you know, so much of uh, uh, our time is spent evaluating the strength of, of ministries based on whether or not, who is that person that's up there? Who are they? Who, who's that person talking? Do they do they live what they say they want us to live? You know, and, and we, we hear so often. Oh, the reason why I don't go for organized religion is because of the hypocrisy. So so Paul is telling Timothy, if you stay on course and you instruct with love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a strong and sincere faith that you'll lead well. In contrast, he says in verse six, for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. I want to pause on that statement for just a second here. I, I, Trip on that every once in a while. I've told you before, I've been brought up in the church and and uh, we've um, you know, when you're brought up in a in an evangelical church setting. So much is emphasized on on we live in an economy of grace and that the law is Old Testament. And we've put that away now because Christ has fulfilled the law. And so we don't focus on that. You almost get the sense that the New Testament opposes the old, that somehow grace opposes the law. But that isn't what's going on here at all. And even Paul says, do you know, the law is good as long as it's used correctly, as long as it's used lawfully. But he says there's been some strange teaching going on in the midst there in Ephesus, Timothy, and some of that teaching is manipulating the law. The reason people love to manipulate the law, because it gives you control. Religion gives people control, not just the leaders, But also those that are conducting themselves in religion, because they can say, well, I can kind of control whether or not I feel faithful to the Lord because I did enough good deeds. So I feel like I'm in control of the situation. That's what religion does. And that's the era of applying the law. The law is set as our standard. He says it's a good thing. The law is a good thing. As long as one uses it lawfully. Verse nine, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Where does Paul get this? According in verse 11 to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which i have been entrusted paul is saying do not run from the law do not run from a fear of it but make sure it's being handled correctly because for the law, because for us the law has led to our hope and we'll clarify that in a second let's see what galatians 3 says Paul, uh, in, in writing a different letter to the church in Galatia says this in, in chapter three he says, therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. Now that Jesus has accomplished, now that he has fulfilled all the requirement of the law and he's satisfied his father and he's done all that for us. Now we are able to say to the law, thank you for the great education I've been given. You've walked me to school. You've led me to where I need to go. You've 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 allowed me to, to struggle through my homework, all those kinds of things. But now that a new master has taken over, I no longer need the law to satisfy what I'm trying to accomplish with the heavenly father. Someone else has taken care of that for me. Paul is telling us the glorious gospel has revealed that to him, has made that plain to him that the law had its place and then it had its stopping point. And then it was no longer sufficient to carry us forward. And this is where it starts to get personal for Paul, because if we were, if we stopped right there and we just shared that list of kind of that ugly, dark, heavy sin list, just a few verses before the one that says all of these people and in first Corinthians, he has another ugly list. And he says all of these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so if we just looked at those lists, it's really easy for us as, as people of faith to say, thank you, preacher, for sharing that list. I sure am glad I'm not one of them. And that's what happens with us, right? We start to to get self-justified and we say, boy, I'm glad I'm not those people because I know I have eternity with God. And so I'm so glad I don't have the, I don't, I'm not the same as those people. I'm so glad I've been redeemed. I've been born again. I've been washed in the blood. And if we're not careful, it's so much easier to focus on the sins of all those out there Paul doesn't give us that wiggle room. I love the heart that comes from what he's writing to Timothy here, because he could easily say, Timothy, so don't let those people water down the church. Don't let those people corrupt what's going on. Instead, he's saying, go find those people, because they're, they're under a system that is crippling them, and the law isn't going to set them free. And Paul is about to say, because if anybody should know, it's me. Verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all yet for this reason i found mercy so that in me as the foremost he's saying as the worst of the sinners the chiefest of sinners jesus christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life paul is saying and this is not false humility if you know anything about the life of, of Paul, it's almost a little bit masked in here when he says, I was a persecutor and a violent aggressor. I mean, it sounds like a terrible list, but you can crank it up a notch when you realize who he was persecuting. He would have been in our day and age. He would have been the one threatening to um, drag us to jail for doing what we're doing. He would have been the one trying to, uh, in our system here, trying to lobby the Supreme Court to shut down religion and to all, do all the things that we're starting to feel the heat of persecution. Paul would have been the driving force, the one with the megaphone saying, these people can't get away with this because they are distorting and destroying the law of God. He would have been absolutely convicted he was on the right side. He was zealous. And also to the point that he would take those leaders and oversee their execution. The same people that he's writing these letters to with a heart of faith pouring out to. So you can understand Paul's not just saying to be a good leader. Oh, I'm the worst of sinners. He truly believes it doesn't get any uglier than what I've done. Because not only... Am I a blasphemer? Not only am I an aggressor or a persecutor, I did it towards the church that my Savior died for. So Paul is saying that whole list I just shared with you, all the people that won't make it into heaven, all the people that the law is for, that really ugly list, it's mine. I'm guilty of every one of those things. So, Timothy, don't forget this that there is hope to be found because the law has revealed to me that I was that person. I encountered Jesus Christ and he says, I was shown mercy and grace. And that's what the glorious gospel has revealed to me. And he closes out this section, verse 17, he says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The glorious gospel that Paul is talking about is what we refer to as the good news. And I don't know if you've noticed, but good news isn't really that popular in society. Now we ache and moan, right? We say, I just want to hear a good story for once. I want to hear some good news. But as consumers of the news, I would think that if that's really what we wanted, then the news would put out better stories, but they never seem to have to. Why? Because we really don't demand those good stories. We like to hear them once in a while. We get to hear them sometimes in our local newscasts at 628, you know, it's like, oh, and by the way, a group of orphans saved a group of nuns from drowning today. Now on to your nightly news. And then the nightly news switches over and it's like war is threatening and Iran's doing this and all that sort of stuff. And then the last two minutes of their broadcast are like, oh, and good news, you know, a group of puppies was rescued by, uh, I don't know. And so. If we really wanted good news like we claim we do, there would be a market for it. But it's really not one out there, is there? So we have to square in our mind. Why do we say on one hand, I just want some good news for once, but that we don't seem to really seek it. There is something in us that kind of craves that, that scandal or that, that, um, that, that dramatic story or something's broken or something's going wrong or oh no, this can't be fixed. There's just something in our humanity that finds some strange comfort or peace in that it's short term, but we find it in that. And I believe it's because news isn't good until it's something that affects us. I want to hear a good story for me. I'm sick of every envelope I open being a bill I can't pay or I'm tired of every time I confront my kids. They're just they're never getting on the program. They're never uh, uh, submitting to the the authority in the home. I just for once want something to work well because it affects us personally now. Now, I have a I've shared this illustration before, but it's um, I need a sip. Um, and I did not time that, but it's interesting because I have a love-hate relationship with water. I, um, and not, not the, like the, the floating kind and the swimming kind and all that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't care. That's all fun and that's great. I love that kind of water. Uh, a glass of water to me is the most boring, um, often unsatisfying drink that I've ever been given. And, um, and yet it's directly from my creator. It's perfect for my health. It's the best source of hydration. It's all the things that we know water to be. It's 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 great for you. And yet I find it on most occasions completely unsatisfying. Just kind of eh. I so I drink water kind of like we have to take medicine or vitamins. I'm supposed to so I will. Until I um am out working in the sun, which doesn't happen very often, um or or working out, which needs to happen more or, uh, those kinds of things. If I'm in an environment where now my body temperature has gone up, my pulse is going up. My, my mouth is dry. If I'm sitting in front of hundreds of people trying to make sense of God's word, you know, all those things start to create in me this level of need that now this is the only thing I can think of the thing that I could take or leave when things are going okay. And I'd much rather have a soda, uh, becomes the only thing I can really think of. And so if I was panting and just kind of hunched over and everything, and the only thing that's, that I had to drink was, a, was like a Dr. Pepper or a root beer or something, I would drink it, and normally I would love it, but this time I would be drinking it going, boy, this is it's, it's going down harsh, it's burning my throat, it's going to be unsatisfying in mere moments, I'm going to wish I had another one right off the bat, or I just wish I had a glass of water. The point is, is that news isn't good until we know what the bad is, until we know what's really going wrong, till we know what we're really up against. The news isn't really good until we can share it in contrast like that. And the gospel is good news, but what we've made it in our society here in America is that we've made it an add on. We've made it a kind of thing. It's good news if you got time for it. It's good news if you can fit it into your way of thinking. It's good news if you can fit it into your other philosophies that you want to make sure you're uh, uh entertaining in your life. It has co- it has gone so far from being the only thing that'll satisfy that when we say that the gospel is good news, people go, "Well, prove it to me." Well, the Bible has spent significant time uh, sharing with us why we need the gospel, why we need the good news of Jesus Christ. And in a couple of very famous passages that are referred to as the Romans Road, our need is spelled out very clearly. It starts off in Romans 3.23, where Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we're paying attention, if we're being honest with what that does on our insides, we start to feel a little bit thirsty. Our pulse starts to quicken a little bit and our palms start to sweat. You're saying every one of us has sinned. Every one of us carries within us that guilt. All of us have sinned. And 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 in my, I like how when Pastor Bill says that, you know, the Lord didn't take my, uh, my um, counsel on the matter and stuff. If I was writing this passage or translating into English, I don't think I would have said and fallen short of the glory of God. Because to me, that makes me picture almost getting it. But when you see what falling short really, really is, we are so far from getting anywhere near the glory of a a perfect God that we haven't just fallen short. We've fallen off the cliff. And so when 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 Paul tells us in Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, there should be something being done in our thirst a little bit saying, well, I didn't know I didn't see that coming. I didn't know I was completely destitute. I didn't know I was was completely uh, incapable of of reaching god's glory when we see how sins showed up in our world when Adam and Eve introduced us to the whole concept, if you will, and actually committed the first sin, we see the mechanics kind of on display of what sin does in our life. The thing that starts making us thirstier and thirstier for pure water, because when Adam and Eve sinned, what we saw instantly going on was a strange rebellion. This even though everything was perfect, even though God's authority was 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 in in a communion with them, it wasn't like he showed up, and said, do this, do this. Blah, 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 blah. He said, I'm going to give you everything except this one thing that that means everything, all of this except this one one thing, all of this, except this one thing. And so God was saying, this is all the relationship I've given you. Don't blow it by that one thing over there. What do we do? We go and blow it by that one thing over there. There's a strange rebellion. Says, I don't need anybody telling me what to do. Instead of hearing 99.9% of everything that God said about the garden, they fixated on that point. 1%. Is that my math there? I always get messed up with decimals. Uh, And, and they fixate on that, and that rebellion says, you can't tell me I can't do that. Satan comes along and assists the whole thing, distorts God's words, we know how that goes. And so rebellion is introduced, we understand what sin produces in our life in that rebellion, and then, and then, and then it gets really weird, because even though they know God's created all this, He's been walking with us through the garden. He's been sharing a relationship with us. Somehow, someway, as soon as I mess up, I think I can hide in a bush. Somehow, someway, I think I can cover myself with enough clothing so I'm not ashamed or embarrassed. There's this progress that happens in sin where we say, I don't need anybody telling me what to do. And as soon as I really dig my heels into that and engage in that, I start thinking I can cover it up, which is demonstrating our guilt, right? If we if we were just as fully rebellious, I don't care what anybody says. I don't care what anybody does, what they think about me. But as soon as we enter into that sin, we start feeling. I hope they don't see what I've done. All of a sudden, we care what they think. I can cover it up. And then, as God is removing Adam and Eve from the from the garden, as the consequence to their sin, as He's introducing all of these things that now their sin is fractured in in our human experience and all the consequences that we're going to that we're going to receive from it. You can almost hear, hear them stop at, the, stop at the gate. And I'm speculating and I'm ad-libbing here and stuff. But, you know, they're stopping at the, the gates of the garden or something and turn around and say, Well, wait, wait, Lord, just is there anything, anything at all we can do to get back in? We, we have no idea what's out there. Can we just, is there an animal we can sacrifice? Is there something we could do? I mean, something, somebody we should pay or anything like that. How can we get back in and do this? And the Lord says, Your action has separated this relationship. I'm removing you from everything I've prepared for you. That is the consequence of sin. That's the product of sin in our life. Romans 6, 23, in the very first part of this verse says, the earnings of our sin, the wages of our sin is death. And Adam and Eve experienced that death ultimately hundreds of years later as they physically died. But the moment that they were kicked out of that garden, that separation between them and God, that spiritual death had taken place. At the height of our despair, as we start to realize, I am Adam, I am Eve. I've gone through that whole process. I'm guilty of all those things. And we get more and more parched. We get more and more thirsty. Tell me there's got to be something good. And at the height of our despair, Romans 6.23, the verse we just started with, has a but. He says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's that first giant gulp there's after that long run and you're just dying for something, there's that first gulp. You know how you can't get enough, but you're gonna run out of air, so you have to stop. And it seems like with all that you just took in that would be enough, but instantly kind of another quick thirst comes up and you need more, and so the Lord says, Okay, you like that sip? Here's another one. Romans ten thirteen says, So therefore who whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the good news. This becomes the identity of the believer. This becomes the identity of the church that all of us were born in sin and that that sin has kicked us out of the garden. It's kept us apart from a perfect, clean and spotless God. But the gospel can be encapsulated in our most famous verse of John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Ultimately, but have eternal life. Paul says, this is what I experienced. I was that person. I got kicked out of the garden. I violated all those things. I had rebellion. That rebellion produced a foolishness that I thought I was doing the right thing. I was completely ignorant, he said, in my unbelief. But God showed two things for me. He says he showed me mercy and he showed me grace. Let's talk about those two concepts real quick here. Mercy is a withholding of something. Mercy is a holding back of this punishment that you and I rightly deserve. So if that sin, which we really can't comprehend how offensive sin is to a holy God, because we don't know holiness like God is. So that sin is such an affront and such an offense to a holy God that he has every right and nature and character to just want to come down and crush it and just slam us and squash us like a bug. But God, in his mercy and in his grace, said, I will provide my son to do that. And if you see what he did on the cross, you see what he did for the 33 years that led to the events of the cross. God took that same fierceness, that same strength, that same squashiness, and he looked over at his son and he did it there instead. I remember being kind of my mind blown the first time I visited this church in uh, in 2003 and the worship team did a song that we've sung on. Um, it hasn't been real recently, but there's this one line. It's a song called Jesus. Thank you. And there's this one line that says you, the perfect holy one, crushed your son. And for 14 years, I've had a hard time singing that line because it's so vivid. And you picture if that were your own kid, could you crush your own kid? And because it would only take the wrath of a holy god to be able to do that that should show us the fierceness of this wrath so so in our our uh, easter um i mean our good friday service we had heard a clear presentation on all that led to the events of jesus being crucified for us and it was nothing short of god's wrath but not being poured on us. And so mercy is God just saying, I'm going to take that hand and I'm going to squash your sin like a bug. And, and you're going to be in the way of it and you're going to, and then all of a sudden he just goes, but I'm going to put it on my son. Mercy is holding that hand back from us and redirecting it to him. Paul says, that's what I've been shown. I should have been squashed in the moment I was in my sin and in my ignorance, but I wasn't. So instead I received mercy. I didn't get the spank. I didn't get squashed. And instead of God just saying, now, therefore, run along, leave me alone. Just get out of my presence because that was for you. And I, I bailed you out. Now get out of here. God says, I did that for a reason so that you would come to me. And that I could embrace you, that I could give you new life. And that's what grace is. Grace is the giving of the thing that we don't deserve. Mercy is holding back what we do deserve. Grace is the giving of what we deserve. And, and we receive this invitation from the Lord and we say, oh, okay. And then we're looking at Jesus the whole time going, is, is this cool with you? I mean, you just took everything from me and he wants, he said, it's because of me. And he did that to you. And, and Jesus is saying, I, I'm part of the plan. I did all that so that you could run to my father. See, this is the gospel message. This is why it's good news, because it starts off so ugly, so dark, so bleak. How can it be just a thing that we add to our lives, a good philosophy from a great teacher? Paul also strengthens this in the book of Ephesians in chapter one. He says, in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, The gospel of your salvation, having also believed you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Why? What was all this for? To the praise of his glory. Remember, Paul said he he did this to me, the ugliest of you all. He did it to me so that everyone else could say, well, if he can do it in Paul's life, then he can do it in mine. It's for the praise of his glory. So how should the gospel shape a church? The gospel gives the church her identity, an eternal identity, not an identity that is uh, passing with the fads and the fashions, not an identity that, is, that succumbs to the climate of the decade that we're in, an eternal identity, the same identity that faith, the evangelical free church has is the same one that the reformers had, the same one that the early church had back uh, in Paul's time. This is more than just a message on how we are saved, but we're discussing where the church gets its identity. Remember, we said there's enough problems in the world that we could get distracted with how to solve them. The beauty is, is that the gospel bleeds into all of these areas. The gospel starts moving into the addiction area more than anybody else can. The gospel starts moving into broken families more than anything else can. The gospel starts moving into um, uh, 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 parentless uh, children more than anything else can. The gospel accomplishes all those things. So if our identity remains in the gospel, then all the things that we accomplish will have eternal results, not just headlines in the local paper. The gospel also strips the church of her human qualifications or her temptation, if you will, to pick leadership or the go-to people based on our own human qualifications. I'm using lots of passages from Paul here this morning, so I apologize if it seems like we're bouncing around a lot. But um, I, I just appreciate a lot of what he said on the matter. In 1 Corinthians 1 as he's addressing a church that is really mixed up and and really crooked and everything and a lot of problems going on, which is what most of our churches are and stuff, needing instruction from Paul in these areas, he reminds the the hearer that they aren't as cool as they think they are. He says this, he says, "'For consider your calling, brethren, "'that there were not many wise according to the flesh, "'not many mighty, not many noble, "'but God has chosen the foolish things of the world "'to shame the wise.'" And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. What God does in the gospel of the church is he messes with the whole playing field, the people that we would think should be the natural leaders. We've been hearing about this in in 1 Samuel and how this is all coming together and, and what the people wanted from a leader versus what God raises up for a leader and things. We have our own standards that we say, this is who we can follow. And God's like, well, wait a second here. I'm doing the work. I laid my life down for this. So the qualifications belong to me. So in essence, the person who uh, spent half of their adult life living in a box under a bridge might have the same ability to lead or same qualifications eventually as the same person who's been running a multi-million dollar corporation. In the gospel, the the playing field gets leveled. And so what the gospel does is it humbles the church. It gets our eyes off of the things that we think are the best strategies and instead helps us to follow the one who owns it all. It also gives the church an unending mission. Anytime one of our missionaries comes to visit so often, we hear this passage out of Matthew 28 verses 19 through 20. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to, here's a key word in this, observe all that I commanded you. Our calling in the gospel is to make disciples. Not just to say what Jesus did, but to actually see it turn into conversion, which then turns into true followers of Christ. And we're to be baptizing them. That's why we do things publicly. It's this public testimony of, I really do believe this. I'm not doing this in the shadows. I'm out here for everybody to see. Teaching them to observe. In other words, to live it out. Not just a finger on our chin going, hmm, interesting. I'm observing. Observing is I'm putting it into action. I'm living it out. I'm observing this Christian life. This gospel call And woe be to the church who only sees their mission as merely proclaimers of the gospel when we've been called to be observers or practitioners of it. In my day, I know for Pastor Bill and so many others, we've seen so many churches get to where they feel like they've perfected the proclaiming of the gospel. We've got people out on the street corners every single weekend. We've got people knocking on doors. We've got the, the method down. We can say these things in three minutes flat. We can, you know, I had, a, I had a class. I've shared this with some of you before, but I had a class in college that told me exactly when I could hold the person's hand that it might work on their emotions at right at the right time that they could receive Christ. There's methods out there to do this thing so that we can perfect just the proclaiming of the gospel so that we can say it better. Like Just like you know, selling cars or houses or something like that, there's strategies. Woe be to the church that rests on strategies and just the simple proclamation of the word instead says we need to be the ones practicing it. In other words, has the gospel marked us like we're calling it to mark, while, while we're calling other people to let it mark them? And it's my firm conviction that, that the gospel infects every little part of our lives. This isn't just something we save for the time that the church sends us out to knock on doors or pass out leaflets or to, to get together on Sunday morning. The gospel is meant to permeate everything in our lives. I'm going to share with you as we close a silly, dumb little story from something that happened to me yesterday. Um, I'm sharing the silly dumb ones because the real ones hurt too much and they're too embarrassing. So, um, so, um, Yesterday, uh, I was, um, by myself in the staff kitchen over here and we have a Keurig machine. And, uh, if you use Keurig machine, you know, you put the little coffee pod in there and it fills up and it does its thing. Well, so I'm getting my one cup of coffee. And again, like I said, nobody else around or anything. And so I, I'm done with it. I'm getting ready to walk off and inconveniently, the little blue light comes on. that says, add water. So I'm kind of thinking no one would know number of people that work here. Tomorrow's going to be busy. No one will know probably Pastor Bill. Cause he got here at six in the morning or something like that would have been the first one greeted with it. But I was going, you know, I just, I've got things to do. This message was on my mind. I kind of felt like I was finally getting somewhere. I was like, I got to get in there and do this. And it was two steps over to the sink. It was taking the little carton off and filling that in and everything and just being done. But, but, Here's what happened in my, in my puny little faith was I said, I really don't want to be bothered with this right now. And, and you always run to the, why is it always me? Like I'm always the one filling it up. Right. <laughs> and, 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 and so the irony in my life was that I was thinking about this message, which was the distraction for me doing the thing that inconvenienced me. And so, and I was trying to think of, well, at some point I'm going to have to say practically what the gospel is. How do I do that? And the Lord's like, well, now's a good time. Why don't you try this? This might explain what we're talking about. And you go, oh, wait a second. How does the gospel impact filling up the water in a Keurig machine? It seems like a big stretch. Well, here's, here's what it said to me. I'm not saying it's going to say this to everybody, but here's what it said to me. Cause I was thinking about it. I can't be inconvenienced to go out of my way so that the next person that comes in just gets to hit the button and be done. I can't go out of my way. The gospel message is entirely about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, enjoying the splendor and majesty of heaven, being inconvenienced and sent to a people that wanted nothing to do with him just to just to spit on him, pull his beard and, and nail him to a tree. So his blood runs down the street, all of that. And I'm saying, I can't fill up that little tank so that the next person getting coffee can't be blessed by that. So is the gospel bigger than that? Absolutely. Saving us from our sins for all of eternity is a big deal, much bigger than filling up water in a coffee pot. But it's so thorough that it even reaches that. When the gospel becomes our identity, when the people of God go out there being marked by the gospel, you can see how everything starts to change. Now the reputation of the people of faith, evangelical church are people that are known for being marked by the God that they claim to serve. Not just the ones that have gotten the message down, not just the ones that are looking down on the sinners out there saying you're not as good as me because I go to church on Sunday. But we are marked with Paul's humility where he says, I was the worst of you guys. And yet God showed me grace and mercy. He showed me mercy by not giving me what I deserved. And he showed me grace, which was giving me more than I could ever deserve. This is where the church can find its identity and practice it out in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you stand and join me in closing prayer? And then we all need to run and get some water. <laughs> Lord God, I thank you so much, Father, for marking us. Thank you for showing us a grace that we don't deserve. Help us to live by it. Lord, I pray for safe travel today. I pray for um, effective outreach for our people as they get around their families and, um, and get around their coworkers and face the struggles of life. Um, Lord, we are all tempted and led to do the things that hurt you. And so I pray, Lord, that you would rescue us from ourselves. May your gospel permeate every corner of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.